1: Hello, I'm Rashma Kapadia, Associate Editor at Barron's. Welcome to Managing Your Money, Why the S&P 500 Could Be Headed Higher Despite Wall Street's Gloom. Today with me is Savita Subramanian, Head of U.S. Equity Strategy, Quantitative Strategy, and Global ESG Research at B of A Securities. Welcome, Savita.
0: Hi, Reshma. Great to be here. Thanks for having
1: me. Oh, so much to talk about. And so thank you for joining us, Evita. Um, So I feel like the markets are at this interesting juncture as we've seen sort of an avalanche of scary headlines. And there's a lot of talk about the debt ceiling and bank failures, a lot of bearishness around. But you have a relatively bullish outlook for the S&P 500. Um, what are you seeing that others may be missing? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think that, you know, we're
0: relatively bullish, but we are bullish on kind of what I would call the equal weighted S&P 500 on, on stocks within the market. I think the overall index could struggle because it's still very top heavy. But, you know, what I think that investors may be missing, well, not missing, but I, I, I think there's two problems. One is that, you know, we've been bracing ourselves for this recession for a really long time. I mean, we've been talking about this impending recession, imminent recession since the beginning of last year. And I think what that's done is it's created this sort of, you know, continued defensive positioning. And what we've seen over the last year and a half now is just investors, institutional investors, individual investors sort of preparing for a a pretty deep recession. And now what we're hearing from our economists is that this recession might actually be what I call recession light. In fact, our economists are calling for a peak to trough decline in US GDP of about 0.8%. Which compares pretty favorably to the typical recession of a you know a peak to trough two percent decline. So mm, mm-hmm. the idea that we've been preparing for the you know so, sort of a a really deep recession for a year and a half, and we're now faced with what looks like potentially a milder recession, is one reason that I think we should you know kind of think about the the risks of upside upside risk to the S and P five hundred. And then on top of that, I think what we've seen over this past earnings season has been fascinating in that companies, I mean, I always say never underestimate corporate America because (laughs) companies are very good at navigating Um, you know, differences in in the macro backdrop. And what we've seen is that companies have been very nimble about cost cutting, um, about spending on automation to counter uh, more expensive labor costs. So we've seen a lot of adaptive measures take place, which I think could translate into real productivity gains, efficiency
1: gains over, you know, the next few years. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no. Okay, so there's a lot there. And we can kind of dig into a lot of that. So that that definitely explains things. So I think, you know, several um, people who are listening in and had asked, Ray included, you know, so you sort of are basically talking about chances of a soft landing in 2023. You're, you guys are in that camp. Is that accurate?
0: Well, I don't know if I would call it a soft landing or a longer, shallower recession or Got something it. along those lines. But I, I think, and I'll leave it to our economists to come up with the right sure. term. So far, they're just calling it a recession. <laughs> but, um, but I think that the idea here is that it's not necessarily the recession of 2008. It's more of, or 2009, it's more of a, um, you know, kind of a Uh, a longer but potentially shallower
1: Mm -hmm. recession. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone is so focused on what happened in 08 and 09 and don't remember all the other recessions that we've had Exactly, well, yeah,
0: this is what sticks out in our mind.
1: It's that recency bias that we all have. Of course, and so on that same front, um, we are obviously seeing um, bank failures with Silicon Valley Bank and and several others and and concerns about a credit crunch. Um, I mean, how are you guys thinking about sort of whether there are more breaks out there and what impact that could have on sort of your, your outlook?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, it's a good question. And I think, you know, I, I think it's hard to know the hidden risks within these opaque financial companies. Um, the way we're thinking about this is really, okay, you know, who's got who's got credit risk today? Where are the unintended, you know, risks of a, of a zero interest rate moving from zero to 5% on the short end of the curve? Where are the, you know, the sort of hidden risks around that? And our view is that, you know, larger regulated banks are likely in, in a better position from a risk perspective. So if you think about the the SIFIs or the GSIBs or, you know, the the sort of the, the companies that came under pressure during 08-09 and have been, you know, very disciplined about capital, um, have been, you know, effectively regulated into to a point where their leverage ratios are really just a shadow of their former leverage ratios. Our view is that these are the companies that are probably in better footing to navigate this, uh, this environment and that haven't been allowed to take on as much risk as some of the smaller regional banks. That said, um, you know I think that, that the, the big banks are also discounting more risk just given what we've seen unfold um across the regional banks and perhaps that risk is warranted but i think that where we are now is an environment where again we're all thinking about the last financial crisis Um, there is this sense that you really you know you don't want to be you know you what after one bank rolls over if you know a few more roll banks roll over that's a sign of you know a 2008 like Mm -hmm. gfc and in our view we're actually, we think that companies are in better footing from a leverage perspective today and assigning that type of a risk premium is not warranted for,
1: um, for the cities. Okay, so that makes sense. So that's, that's sort of the banking outlook. Um, kind of brings us a little bit to sort of what the Fed is doing. Um, so there are several sort of um, questions Leilana is asking what your peak inflation rate is and what peak Fed rate you're forecasting for this cycle. So are you in the camp that we've, we've seen a pause and this is the top and, and maybe who knows how long we stay here, but we're not going higher. Or, you know, what is sort of the outlook from you guys in terms of inflation and interest rates?
0: Yeah, definitely a pause. But I think the idea that we're going to see a cut in the second half of this year is hard to argue for because we're, I mean, so, so I suppose when you look at inflation risk, there are a couple of big structural changes in labor as well as commodities that are important to acknowledge. So from a labor perspective, I mean, the, the Fed is you know, very focused on, on um, loosening the, a very tight labor market. Yeah. And where we've seen the biggest drop in the labor participation rate during COVID was in you know, the, the great resignation or the early retirees. And those folks haven't come back yet. So Mm -hmm. maybe they never do. So I think that that's what companies are sort of adapting to is the idea that, you know, and and that's why they're spending on automation and AI and efficiency measures is the idea that if we are in a structurally elevated um, inflation uh, environment for, for labor, that warrants spending on, um, on solutions to replacing labor with, with other efficiencies. And I think that's where we really are in the in the inflation story. So the question is: you know, how quickly do efficiency gains alleviate some of the pressure in a tight labor market? There are obviously some jobs that just can't be replaced by AI or robots. So right. those are the areas where you know where, where we're not likely to see. Uh, any real deceleration in wage uh, wage pressures, unless we loosen our immigration policy or we mm-hmm. see retirees come back to work, mm-hmm. etc. There's also this problem with you know um, services and healthcare, where a lot of healthcare workers have uh, work in dual-income families and have gone back home to take care of their children because yeah. the cost of health uh, of childcare is so high. So mm-hmm. a lot of these issues in labor, I think, are structural rather than cyclical. Um, and that could keep the Fed pressured uh, for longer than what the market is expecting. And then I think it's important to acknowledge that on the commodity front, things have changed pretty dramatically from where we were a few years ago. So I think what's important to, to highlight and what I, what I think is really fascinating to watch, um, you know, wearing my ESG hat, is that energy companies are no longer paying themselves on production targets which was the former you know goal that that comp that drove compensation of ceos today ceos are compensated based on esg targets on capital allocation on you know dividend preservation so the the whole mo for mm-hmm. energy companies is very different and it's not about supply mm-hmm. it, it continues to keep constrained supply in commodities. And yes, we are getting to a cleaner, greener future where we won't rely as much on fossil fuels, but we're not there yet. And in the meantime, I think there is still, you know, some inflationary pressure in the in the commodities complex that we haven't seen for a while, that we haven't seen for you know the last 10 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the areas where I think the Fed might be under pressure to to continue to hike rates. The other thing that I think is interesting is that you know, when you look at charts, like long-term charts of inflation cycles, they tend to last for a really long yeah, time. Yeah. I feel like, you know, one of the ways I sort of try to try to, to, to discipline myself is I force myself to look at a lot of longer-term charts. And Reshma, when you look at interest rates, when you look at inflation and where we are now within the context of, you know, 100 years one could argue that there is much more upside risk to both rates and
1: inflation than what I think the market is. is, mm-hmm. is. I think yeah. that's uh, That's very good. I mean, we're very sort of focused on the very near term. <laughs> Don't look at the, <laughs> the wider aperture, which is very important, especially at a time where there are paradigm shifts. I mean, you mentioned a couple of them, but we're also talking about deglobalization yes, and exactly. the pressure that costs on margins to some yep. extent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so um, I want to remind the audience to send in your questions, and I'll try to get to them as we get through this conversation. Um, But, you know, I think there's a lot of questions based on what we've just kind of laid out here, what parts of the market are attractive at this juncture? Um, You know, technology, for example, doesn't do great if rates are not coming down. But of course, you mentioned automation, energy efficiency. So how should people be thinking about let's start with tech, the tech sector? So tech, I'm a little bit worried about
0: because I think that, you know, especially, uh, well, tech is is so many things and I think it's hard to say it's a sector. So I I think that some areas of technology like AI, like automation are very interesting in terms of the potential to drive efficiency, which, you know, it's interesting. I think that efficiency is job one for corporate America. And and we track, you know, word counts during earnings season, just to sort of, you know counting the number of times that mm-hmm. a word pops up in transcripts and efficiency was one of the most um oft used words uh, during this this past first quarter earning season so everyone's laser focused on efficiency and and tech helps helps companies get efficient what i worry about is the overspend that we saw in technology during covid and mm-hmm. That's where I think that we could be in kind of a Y2K like setup. And what I mean by that is if you look at CapEx trends ahead of 2000, we saw a big pickup in spend on technology relative to other areas because we were all worried about, you know, kind of crossing that millennium mark and, mm-hmm. and moving dates. And obviously, it was kind of a non event if we look at it in the rearview mirror. But what we saw after Y2K was, you know, this deceleration and in fact, negative uh, sales growth for technology companies for a couple of years in particular software. So I think that, you know, some of that demand pull forward that we saw during COVID, um, you know, just basically we couldn't spend on anything else. Companies weren't spending on travel or entertaining. So they, they really probably overspent on technology. Mm -hmm. And now I think that that area, um, you know, just, just some of those, those, um, Nice to have applications or, or, or data packages will likely get cut um, mm-hmm. going forward. So I think that those are the areas of risk within tech. You know, the other risk to technology from here, and, you know, again, this, this are, is predicated on the idea that we might be in a, a rising interest rate or a rising cost of capital environment for a while, Tech companies and growth companies do really well when the cost of capital is falling because they tend to be, you know, longer duration plays. So mm-hmm. their growth is back end loaded, and a falling discount rate is is just really beneficial. But if we're in an environment where inflation and rate risk is is higher, um, I think that that's another. Another bit of the calculus that we need to incorporate into our, um, you know, valuation assumptions around tech companies. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that after the first quarter, where you saw technology companies do really well, you know, I think that lured a lot of investors back into tech. We're seeing again really high valuations for some of these companies after some rationalization last year. So what worries me is that we're still not at a point where the market might be adequately
1: discounting a different rate slash inflation backdrop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so when we're talking about sort of the companies that might have seen that pull forward and and sort of the nice to have data packages, I mean, is that software or like what what part of tech are you are you worried about? Yeah,
0: so I think it's it's well, it's software. Um, it's I think mean, I think it's actually a very idiosyncratic portion of tech um, I think that maybe smaller tech companies suffer as enterprise spend consolidates into the bigger companies and cut some of the smaller tech spend, mm-hmm. spend on smaller companies that they had in in uh, 2020 2021 um, you know I think it's it's sort of a it's a, it's a little bit more beneficial to mega cap tech than it is to smaller companies so I think that that could keep the S&P um, you know, going a little bit better than than the Russell going forward. But, um, but I do think it's very idiosyncratic. So I think that the job of us as investors, and this is more for our fundamental analysts, is to really look at where you've seen discretionary tech spending and where you're gonna see those recurring revenues. But even recurring revenue, super safe software, you're seeing the timelines getting stretched out, which means- yeah. Less money early up front, and that is another risk that I think that investors need to bake into their uh, Mm
1: -hmm. frameworks. Not extrapolate, right? Exactly. um, Some of the trends, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so if tech is a little bit of a hodgepodge, what what are some of the other sectors that you think will lead um, if if you do expect the S and P to do better?
0: Yeah. So I know this sounds crazy, but I really like commodities and I like big cap financials, and the reason is. That if you look at investor positioning, you know I mentioned earlier we were talking about this recession that we has been you know kind of pushed out two quarters, <laughs> two quarters away every quarter for the last year and a half. Um, I think what we've seen over this this period of time is just an absolute hatred of cyclicals. So yeah. when I look at investor positioning, what's really fascinating is that by any measure, if you look at consumer staples versus consumer discretionary, if you look at you know, regulated utilities versus regulated financials, anything with a whiff of cyclicality is at an all time underweight relative to its defensive counterpart. Mm -hmm. And I think that leaves a very uh, interesting opportunity for stock pickers, um, where cyclical sectors could actually fare better than what we're expecting. So I like energy, I like materials, and I like financials for that for that sort of over penalized cyclical aspect. Um, I also think these companies could become the new high quality companies. And mm-hmm. I know that also sounds a little bit odd. But if you think about where the earnings risk is, you know, at this point in time, I would argue that multinationals, which looked great for the last 20 years, because we had this frictionless trading environment, we had, um, you know, kind of, globalization, uh, diversification across sales coming from different regions. It was just hunky-dory for multinationals. And now we're at a point where a lot of those companies are experiencing some of the um, friction and costs around more protectionist or, or splinter geopolitical risk. Um, and I think those companies become less high quality and more domestic companies become higher quality. When it comes to energy and materials, I think these are two companies that have found supply discipline, capital discipline, and that could actually translate into a higher multiple. And then financials, I think, you know, we, we, went, we got through COVID without financials really taking a huge earnings hit. Um, earnings volatility for large financial companies is actually lower than volatility for the S and P 500. Um, dividend preservation looks looks good. Um, you know, I think these might be the new quality kind of regulated utilities like companies in the next cycle, but they're being painted with the same brushstrokes that we saw during the GFC, and I think that. That might be, uh, um, you know, too draconian for what we're, we're likely to experience.
1: I mean, I think that that's so interesting because we obviously are seeing um, <laughs> central bankers have the back to some extent of the financial companies and then the sort of the big ones kind of getting, reasons, yeah. um, coming in yeah. to now, help, right? It's interesting,
0: but what's different this time is that,
1: that shareholders aren't
0: being bailed out it's mm-hmm. depositors right yeah. so I think that's the difference and that sort of moral hazard or that you know that policy put it, it's different it's not necessarily bailing out all of the, um, the capital markets it's more mm-hmm. focused on the, the man or woman on the street. That makes sense. Um,
1: So I want to touch on the multinationals because this is something that we've been writing about for a while. I cover China quite extensively. And so there is definitely a lot more friction. Um, So how are you seeing that manifest um, in, are you, or are you not yet in their margins? This need for perhaps, you know, uh, dual supply chains, less resilience, perhaps some, you know, pressure on the sales from abroad. Are you beginning to see that already in, in these multinationals or is this sort of a risk going forward? You know, I think that um, for multinationals, we're already starting
0: to see um, a bit of risk, and it's it's around not just from currency, but we I mean, we've had a stronger dollar, and that's hurt some of the multinationals. We've had um, we've already seen companies announcing reshoring programs or near-shoring mm-hmm. programs, so so we're seeing it in the numbers and. You know, I think where it's also showing up is in technology companies that are really being forced to relocate because of national security risk. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, so the, the margin pressure, I think, I mean, it's, it's probably not as acute as we would have expected, but I think this is more of a slow burn mm-hmm. rather than immediate impact.
1: Um,
0: but I guess when I look at the, the drivers of expanding margins over the last 20 years, there are two big themes that drove S&P margins to all time highs. One is globalization and just cost cutting in labor, imports, taxes, everything. Um, and then the other is just lower financing costs. Yeah. Both of those are reversing. So I think mm-hmm. that that's what we need to look at. I mean, I, I think what's also interesting is, you know, one of our themes is that, that a lot of companies have been over earning in the last 20 years. And what you want to pivot to at this point is you want to look for companies that have been under-earning and have been forced to adapt to an environment where they haven't been able to get capital as quickly, haven't been able to manufacture earnings through cost-cutting measures. Um, multinationals have, are, are potentially the, the worst offenders when it comes to over-earning. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that just that simple mean reversion back to kind of a normalized earnings trend Is much more of a penalty for multinationals than it is for some of the more domestically oriented companies in the US. Yeah,
1: no, that's such a good point. Um, Okay, so I'm going to start doing some of this um, rapid fire (laughs) questions from our, (laughs) our audience here if you'll allow me to so uh, one of the questions from Michael and, and some others are also asking, of course, about the debt ceiling, which is front and center today as as President Biden meets with um, folks in the House. So uh, what, you know, do you sort of expect, well, I guess, what is your expectation about the debt ceiling and is your sort of more bullish outlook on the S&P conditioned on resolution of some sort? Yeah,
0: yeah. So so the debt ceiling is a big deal. and And I think we've been trained to think, okay, these, you know, these macro events or these sort of shocks, you want to buy the dip and maybe you don't want to buy the dip this time, but where I think it might be um, more acute and and what is a little bit counterintuitive is that if you looked at, if you look at the prior, you know, kind of um, crises when it came to U.S. debt, like if you looked at the actual debt downgrade in 2011, if you looked at the, the longest government shutdown that we've had in 2018, what underperformed were, um, you know, companies that derive the largest proportion of their sales from government spending? Mm-hmm. And those tend to be in healthcare, tech, um, you know, some industrial companies, defense. Those are some of the more crowded areas within the S&P 500. So I think that's something to keep on your radar is just the idea that governments, government spend exposure might be at risk during those periods. Um, the other risk that I think is different today is, you know, we're at a very different point in terms of public sector debt. So mm-hmm. back in 2011, or even 2018, this was before the big fiscal slash Fed bazooka that we saw in 2020 amidst COVID. Yeah, and I think that changes the game considerably. Um, you know, I, I defer to our economists and our rates uh, team on, on on sort of resolution, and they're expecting to see. You know, kind of resolution in the eleventh hour, um, but I think the risks around that are potentially, um, you know, that it could be a more less of a buy the dip scenario and more of a protracted uh, volatile period in the market with unexpected um, areas of risk like healthcare tech, etc., mm-hmm. um, yeah. and also bonds. I think that you know we're all trained to think that you know during the U.S. debt downgrade bonds US government bonds rallied and it was kind of this perverse reaction to being downgraded, but it was still they were the highest quality asset class. Yeah. I think that's also a question today if you've got a very different leverage setup for for treasury and for the government. It's just the the quality of long-term treasuries is potentially at risk from uh you know a different setup going into the debt ceiling. But Um, if that if that's
1: the case, then isn't the entire market
0: at risk if we're going to start. Yeah, I mean, OK, so look, this is the big elephant in the room is, you know, by my lights, it looks like the bubble that was created over this cycle is really in the risk free rate. right? Right. I mean, the 10 year treasury is what has been kind of, let's call it inflated by asset purchases. And you're right. I mean, the systemic impact of that is something that we just don't even know how it unfolds. Mm-hmm. But I think the idea that you want to go, you you know, in, in period, during periods of risk, you want to be in bonds rather than stocks. I think that might be the wrong call to make in this, at this moment, because, mm if you look at the risks, the risks are around, you know, a longer, uh, a a higher for longer rates and inflation cycle. And both of those macro factors are bad for bonds, but stocks are better able to navigate. So I think that's the, that's the critical question. And you're right. We don't know what it looks like in an environment where, um, you know, the the risk of, of U.S. assets is, is called into question or US treasury bonds is called into
1: question. Yeah. Yeah. So does that mean then, I mean, Christopher is asking if we're sitting on some cash, should we wait until the debt ceiling is resolved by Congress or put it to work ASAP? I mean, if we are in this l- longer, higher rate scenario for longer, there's this unknown. I mean, what, it, what is the thinking there about cash these days? Yeah. I mean, I think the cash looks pretty great at 5%. Um,
0: I do think though that you know waiting until the debt ceiling is behind us to to, to uh, put capital to work is what I hear from everyone. Okay. So my sense is there's a lot of, you know, let's call it dry powder or, or assets that are waiting for this calendar date. And after that, we're going to see them deployed. So I would argue, you know, you might miss that if everybody yeah. is yeah. waiting, it, it probably we w- probably won't see this massive, you know, correction and everybody just gets right in. Um, maybe you want to start putting capital to work in areas that look, you know, inexpensive that look like they might weather the storm, um, you know, better than they had in prior cycles. And where I see those pockets are in kind of a mixed bag of cyclical and defensive Mm -hmm, areas. mm -hmm. I think the sector that you can buy has, you know, no matter what, like we all have to eat. I think consumer staples is a sector that, that, that to me looks, you know, pretty, pretty, you kind of get what you think you're getting earnings are relatively um, stable. Um, we're still in an environment where food inflation is and and, and through is healthy. The trade down is actually um, benefiting some of these staples companies when it comes to consumers. So, that might be an area where you know you 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 think about getting a little bit more exposed, even though it's a bit more crowded than I would like. I think you do get what you think you're getting with consumer staples. Um, I think that with other defensive areas like healthcare or utilities. One needs to think about crowding risk, as well as just, you know, changes in debt structure. Um, one of the surprises to me is that if you look at healthcare, healthcare is actually the fourth highest industry with, uh, when it comes to floating rate risk. Oh, wow. It's surprising, right? I mean, I would have never guessed that, but it just shows up on on that screen. So so I think that that's, that's the... Um, the, the the idea of waiting until after the event to put capital to work, it might just be too
1: late at that point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so people are asking about your S&P 500 levels. Um, so mm-hmm. Neil is saying, do you think the S&P 500 could be headed higher than its all-time high or just higher than we are now?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. So I think that that what gets it above its all-time high is just a, a rejiggering of the composition of the index. And mm-hmm. And I suppose if you were to ask me, are we bullish on the S&P 500 on a cap weighted basis No, but on an equal weighted basis, yes, because Mm -hmm. I think that there are a lot of stocks that are likely to re-rate and, you know, are kind of got the memo about rates and inflation and are adjusting and adapting. Um, Even some big, even big tech is adjusting and adapting, which I think is encouraging to see. Um, I do think that, that, you know, what we saw coming out of the tech bubble, and I'm not saying this is exactly like 99, 2000, But we saw a few years out of, you know, very tight trading range where the constitution of the benchmark shifted from all tech and nothing else to, Mm -hmm. you know, a pretty healthy balance of cyclicals, energy, financials, tech, growth, value. And I think that's what we might be heading into is an environment where that leadership change has just begun. And, um, you know, what gets the market to new highs is seeing a shift from all growth, no value, to something in between. Um, You know, eventually
1: we reach new highs, but I don't know if, I don't think it's this year. Got it, That I think that also gets to a question Ed was asking about how you can um, be bullish on the S&P 500 given the tech situation. So you're really sort of saying that the leadership or the structure of the S&P 500 could potentially change. And at this point, it's the equal weighted index that you feel better about than- than,
0: Yeah, um, in fact, I think they should ask us strategists to give targets not on the cap weighted benchmark, but on the equal weighted benchmark because it's more about the stocks, right? And I think we're actually in a really interesting environment for stock selection. Um, but the problem with the index is that if you're buying the index, you're basically buying like ten companies, and then like a, a small proportion of, of mm-hmm. you know, some other some other stuff. So, so I think that's that's where I think we're all stymied by the fact that this benchmark just looks very uh, top heavy, and it's hard to it's hard to be bullish on the S and P index
1: if you're not bullish on tech. Yeah, yeah, no, that. That's a very good point. Um, so I guess then um, we, this is, I'm taking you a little bit of a pivot, but I think you had a note out that I thought was very interesting about sort of um, the impact on, of inflation on things like the gender gap and, and whatnot. So I guess when you're thinking about inflation, where are we not really realizing the impact of this um, going forward from here? If we are sort of in a higher inflation arena, even if it's not 6%, but it's not 2% either.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that we're seeing it in lots of pockets that are affecting you and me and everybody who's listening, um, you know, like this, this child care, inflation, healthcare affordability, education costs, this, mm-hmm. you know, I think those are the impacts that are really hitting um, the gender gap most acutely. In fact, one of my teammates, Dimple Gosai, wrote a great note on inflation's role in the gender gap. And I, I think those are the drivers is just unpaid care. Crisis. Childcare costs are surging. Healthcare affordability and medical benefit costs are expected to rise more than ten percent this year, which is the highest that we've seen in fifteen years. Um, education costs. You know. So these are the the areas that I think are really, um, you know, kind of driving that wedge between. And you know, and obviously, it's it's the the world is is different today, and there are more dual family, you know, caregivers, etc. But I think that's that that childcare has has typically fallen on, on women and that's where we're seeing that that gender gap increase um, you know women are, are typically um, typically the child child rearers and and they're they're more likely to return home in a dual income family if uh, if they're not meeting you know if they're not able to clear their child care costs so things mm-hmm. like that I think are, are the the um, the factors that are keeping the, the labor market tight that are keeping things uh, pretty pretty um, pretty uh, um, kind of it, it's keeping, keeping inflation from really subsiding you know to, to what the Fed would want to see. Um, I think you know, other pockets of inflation that we potentially need to get used to are like I said, commodities, metals, um, you know all the stuff we need for batteries for EV. There's literally not enough metal in the world right now for getting to, to net zero in the, the, the amount that we need to power all the batteries. So I think that 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 is the other area where we, we need to think about either technological changes, smaller batteries, or, you know, something needs to give in order to alleviate in, uh, inflation in some of these raw materials.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you also wear the ESG hat. And so two questions on that front. So, I mean, you kind of talk about the critical minerals needed to, to kind of this get this energy transition. I mean, there's a lot of excitement about, <clears throat> in some corners, about the Inflation Reduction Act, but then there's also these sort of bottlenecks to actually putting it into implementation. So wearing your ESG hat, I mean, how much do you see um, sort of a boon to renewable oriented companies going forward? So if you're thinking about sort of sector positioning or new leadership, are those companies well positioned?
0: Well, so I think we're at a, at a tough spot here because I, I think we're in an environment where both renewables and traditional energy can outperform simultaneously, which typically doesn't happen. But I think right now we're at this sort of handoff. Um, but but what, what everybody has realized is that the terminal value for oil is probably not zero and that it's gonna take longer to get to, you know, some of these decarbonization goals than, than folks were initially expecting. I mean, I, I think it's surprising to see that when it comes to decarbonization goals, It's not like, you know, every other number that corporates publish. So typically when, you know, a corporate publishes earnings guidance, you think, okay, they're giving us a lower number. They're being conservative and they're going to beat that number. Well, when it comes to decarbonization goals, I assumed the same thing when when everybody set their targets. But these targets are actually getting pushed out more than Mm -hmm. pulled in. Yeah. And and I think the realization is that it's you know in some cases the technology just doesn't exist to get to net zero or or significant decarbonization. In other cases, it's going to take a lot longer than what was initially penciled in. Then, when you start to incorporate indirect emissions from supply chain, it becomes even you know harder mm-hmm. to get your arms around this. So so those are some of the areas where I think you know solutions to decarbonization goals are are some of, you know, some of the strongest themes in the market. And we're seeing a lot of those in industrial companies, Um, U.S. industrials, there's a lot of really interesting decarbonization plays. We've done calls with companies around this. Um, But I think that, you know, the idea that renewables are gonna outperform fossil fuels for perpetuity Mm -hmm. is hard to argue for, given that these are nascent technologies, they're growthier companies, and again, from a cost of capital perspective, yeah. are harder hit by this move in
1: rates and, and the discount rate. Yeah, it's like d- multiple forces moving in different directions to some yeah. extent. <laughs> exactly. um, so I wanted to kind of come back to your gender gap um, question. I mean, I think often people are like, why are you focused on gender? But what I hear you saying is that it's another reason why parts of inflation will stay sticky. And then also, I w- what does that mean for consumer? You know, we keep talking about a healthy consumer, but if families are paying more for healthcare, education, childcare, that's obviously coming out of their their budgets. And Ed has, had asked about if you were worried about the consumer running out of COVID money, um, and yeah. then also credit card balances rising with rates rising. So how are how are you thinking about the health of the consumer?
0: Yeah, so we're underweight consumer discretionary um, you know, for, for those reasons and others. Um, so so I think that those are those are really. Good points. I think that the the share of spend being taken up by other factors like healthcare, like food, like energy costs, heating costs, is eating into discretionary spend. Um, we bought a lot of stuff during COVID. Now we're all traveling, but this pent up demand for stuff has been more than satiated, I think. Um, although never, again, never underestimate the appetite of the US mm-hmm. consumer. Um, but uh, but I think that, you know, I, I guess, I don't think the consumer is in, in a perilous position because again, when you look at the the even, you know, measures of consumer health, a lot of them are actually still as good as pre-COVID or better than pre-COVID levels. So mm-hmm. I don't think the consumer has completely rolled over, but I do think that the shift in spend is, is happening real time. And that's something to keep in mind. Um, so far, wages are keeping up with or you know, almost keeping up with the cost of goods. Um, but if that changes again, you know, watch, watch spending trends. We track our credit card data religiously. And our economists are seeing signs that the trade down is really happening, not necessarily in, you know, from middle income to low or from, you know, low to very low income, but, but it's, it's happening, um, you know, like it's interesting, it's happening in, in kind of the, the higher income brackets. And, and if you look at job losses, we've also seen more job losses in Silicon Valley and Wall Street than in middle America so I think that's another factor to think about what could be different this time. Mm-hmm. And one area within the consumer spectrum that I worry about is luxury because luxury has been defensive for, you know, for for, for yeah. you know, historically it's been a very defensive area of consumer spending, but if we're in an environment where financial asset deflation, wealth destruction, home price depreciation and job losses are most acute,
1: in a wealthier cohort, Mm -hmm. one could argue that luxury is not going to be as defensive. That's a very good point. And also, of course, China is a huge component in luxury. And and Mm -hmm. we were sort of seeing questions. I mean, obviously, we saw a big snapback with um, the initial consumers, but I guess there's some concerns about what the consumer looks like in China going forward beyond exactly. the, the COVID recovery too. Um, so okay, so I'm going to leave you with one question because I think I, we're getting some some folks to sort of help us clarify because um, you it, you are bullish, but I, I you have a bit of a caveat to your bullishness in terms of which sectors within the S and P 500 are bullish because we just talked about all the negatives, right? Job losses and and sort of yeah. um, and, and all that. So just kind of explain, you know, kind of give us a little bit more context in terms of the bullishness for the market. Is it really that you're bullish that equal weighted S&P 500 or certain sectors versus the market as a whole? Look, I'm bullish the equal weighted S&P 500. I think that um, the sectors that are likely to outperform
0: are, um, I mentioned commodity related. Uh, I think parts of industrials um, uh, uh, we're, were overweight consumer staples as a hedge against the end of the world. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I think that the reason that I'm bullish is that everybody else seems very bearish. And yeah. I think that, you know, from a upside versus downside perspective to the S&P 500, I would argue that there is more upside risk from here than downside risk. So, so when I look at asset allocations, when I look at pension allocations, I think that there is, a, um, there is a very marked near-term upside risk to stocks from the idea that everybody is waiting for the debt ceiling, everybody mm-hmm. is waiting for, you know, get out get through this recession before they go long risk assets and if everybody is
1: waiting for something i think you know you want to get into it
0: now rather than wait
1: fair enough always so insightful thank you so much savita it's all the time we have for today um thank you all to the audience for tuning in savita you're always wonderful thank you again for being here my pleasure thanks so much reshma So please join us again tomorrow. Beth Pinsker, MarketWatch financial planning columnist, will speak with Beth Walker, author of Never Pay Retail for College, about a formula to help families understand what it takes to afford college and find a practical way to pay for it. Very timely, considering our conversation about education costs. So thank you for listening. Be well and have a nice day.
0: The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.